0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. As they begin to make their way back, I encourage you to turn two places in your Bible, if you have it. Uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians. we will actually be... ...at the end of chapter 4 and then the beginning verses of chapter 5 today. So, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 is where we'll be in one segment of our message today. And then the second segment will be back in the letter of Hebrews today. So, we'll be in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? So, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 for our first segment. Then for our second segment of teaching today, uh, it'll be Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 10. We're talking today, uh, continuing in our One Another series, and we're talking today about encouraging one another. And uh, as I was preparing this week and and running through uh, quotes and readings and things like this, I came across this quote that um, is an unknown. It's attributed to unknown, meaning nobody knows who said it first or who said it at all, but it's really very powerful. It says, be an encourager. The world has enough critics already thought man that's a powerful powerful statement be an encourager the world has enough critics already today there are people criticizing their coach and the team and the players and the effort and the result and everything else of what went on yesterday in various football games right Today, there'll be people criticizing local and state and federal leaders and how they are handling things or not handling things. Sad to say, there'll be people today who'll leave churches, criticizing music, criticizing the preaching, the style, the length of time, criticizing dress of someone else, and sadly, even criticizing one another. See, we're, we're not exempt to this cultural understanding of criticism right we're all guilty of it it's an easy trap to fall into we all have our own opinion of things worse yet now by the invention of social media we all think everybody else ought to know our opinion of everything if you don't like it I'll just block you right and so it's easy to fall in this trap of being critical And not being an encourager of people. And what the scriptures are going to teach us today is that particularly within the body of Christ, we're to encourage one another. Criticism is not what we're supposed to carry with one another. Now, I do want to make an important distinction here. There is a difference between constructive criticism and being critical of someone else or something in a very destructive way. Um, I've shared with some of you before, I, I had the great pleasure in my life of being both a high school basketball coach and a high school golf coach. And when I would coach golf, uh, lots of times I'd see kids and they'd have maybe a flaw in their swing. If you don't know much about the game of golf, there's a, there's a segment of the swing where you kind of transfer your weight this way. And if you do it right and you do it in the right tempo, it creates a really good swing and really good results. And so I might say something to a kid like, you could gain 15 yards on your tee shot if you would just transfer your weight quicker, right? That's criticism that's showing him or her that they had a flaw in their swing, but it's doing it in a very positive way, telling them this, they could result or benefit from making that change. I could have said something like this. Your swing stinks. You're never going to be a good golfer until you fix that. You see the difference? So there's sometimes in life, and particularly in in our Christian life with one another, there's sometimes we need to raise an alarm. We need to raise a critical thought, maybe about something that we're doing or not doing or something we're involved in. But the reality of it is it's to be done even then in an encouraging fashion. Not in a destructive fashion, not in a tearing down fashion, not in a fashion that the way uh, the enemy can use to bring division and heartache and everything else. So I just will say this before we get into it. The best way not to make the mistake of being destructive in your criticism is to be an encourager. If you don't think you can criticize constructively, then don't say anything. Find a way to encourage, be an encourager today of one another. And so we're going to look at two places, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 today for our first point today. Our first point is this, we are to encourage one another in times of grief and uncertainty. We're to encourage one another as the body of Christ in times of grief and uncertainty. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 and 5, 11, and then we're going to come back and and go through both of those sections. Paul says in 4, 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We'll talk about what those words are in just a minute. And then in 5.11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so the first place of encouragement is in a time of grief. And look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, as we begin to sort of look at that section. Paul says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is 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 referring to when he talks in verse four, uh, 18 of chapter 4 of encouraging one another he's talking specifically about a time of grief that they have or a time of of not understanding and he says we don't want you to be uninformed some of your translations may say the word ignorant uh, I remind you that when you see the word ignorant, it's not a, a negative connotation. It just simply means you lack knowledge, okay? I am very ignorant of how a gas combustion engine works. <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I just don't have the knowledge of it, right? And so he's talking to them. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to lack knowledge. And And the understanding here probably is that at this point, In the church at Thessalonica, they had some understanding of what happened to those who died. That's what that term, fallen asleep, means. They had some understanding of what Christ was going to do in his return, but they just didn't have it completely all sort of figured out yet. This letter is most likely the very first letter of Paul's letters that he wrote, somewhere around A.D. 50, So it's 17 years or so after Christ has been uh, crucified and resurrected. And so they're just kind of beginning to to filter out and to, to work through all of that. And so Paul wants to encourage them here. And he wants to encourage them in their time of understanding grief with full understanding. Okay? Don't be uninformed. Don't be ignorant. And he goes on to encourage them with this. And so how does he do it? Look at verse 14. He begins with belief for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep the the core the foundation of encouraging someone is faith or belief and this is really really essential to us particularly when we're looking to encourage someone in times of grief if I, if I go back to the golf example for a moment, if I didn't have faith or if I didn't believe that individual was capable of making that swing change and then seeing that result, I should not have said that to him. But when I would look at their game, I would look at their, the way they approached the game, I knew that if I said something like that, I had faith, I had belief, that if they would do that, the result would be that they would get better. And so Paul here starts with faith or belief. And he's talking about the fact that he does not want them to grieve as those who are without hope. Uh, People who don't have hope in their grief are people who don't have faith or belief. People die and they just kind of go, I don't know. I don't know what happens to us. Or maybe they have a false faith or a false belief that really doesn't bring them any assurance And so Paul begins his encouragement by building the foundation of belief. Then he moves from belief to making a declaration. Look at verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So his encouragement to them moves from belief or faith to then declaring that belief or declaring that faith. We build a foundation of encouragement on faith and belief, then we speak that to them. Now, he's got this really interesting phrase in verse 15, he says, by word from the Lord. Um, If if you have a a New Living Translation, it says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. The King James, New King James says, this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. And and there's there's some discussion, there's some controversy over what Paul means here. There's some who believe that Paul is basically saying that there's a previously unrecorded or unwritten statement that Jesus made that's not recorded in the scriptures that talks about him specifically coming back in this fashion. There are others who say that he or possibly someone in his group, uh, because again, if you'll notice that what he says beginning in verse 13 is, we do not want you to be informed. Verse 14, we believe. Verse 15, we declare. So there are some who say perhaps Paul or some who were in his ministerial travel group um, had received a special revelation from the Lord that this was the way that things were going to happen. I, I think probably more likely someone had communicated to Paul things that Jesus had said that are recorded in our Gospels. For example, in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, as Jesus is talking about his return, he says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There's some very similar things that Jesus says there is recorded by Matthew, that line up with what Paul writes in this letter to the Thessalonians. So I think probably a better understanding than him getting a special revelation or something like that is that someone had shared with him, hey, we remember when Jesus was talking about this, and this is what Jesus said. And Paul here in his letter includes that in his encouragement. Regardless of how he received it, understand this, the declaration by which encouragement is to be made to one another is found in the word of the Lord, not in the word of man. When we seek to encourage one another, we don't seek to encourage one another with our own wisdom. We don't seek to encourage one another under our own power, under our own truth. We seek to encourage one another, to declare to one another based on God's truth and His wisdom and the way He says things are going to come about. And so as a result of that, Paul gives them that concluding statement that we just looked at, but we'll read again in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When you know someone who's in grief, particularly a fellow believer in Christ, you encourage them with these words. And that does not mean that as you encourage them with these words, all their grief magically goes away. It does not mean that they immediately go from sorrow to joy but it gives them a hope. It gives them something to hold on to in their time of need. And so we encourage one another in times of grief. Secondly, then moving to chapter five, we encourage one another in times of uncertainty. Look at chapter five, beginning verse one. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, meaning when is all this going to take place? Concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. That's a heck of a thing to say, isn't it? Jesus is coming back, the dead are going to rise, everybody who else is alive is going to catch up with him there. don't worry about when that's going to happen. Well, I don't know about you, but when I don't know when something's going to happen, I feel very uncertain. When I, when I feel like or I have good knowledge that something is going to happen, but I don't know when it's going to happen, it launches me into a state of uncertainty. And so I believe here for the church at Thessalonica, it was the same situation that they were in a time of uncertainty in their thoughts through this. And so Paul talks about this, beginning verses 2 through 7, and and I want you to see how he contrasts how there to be versus the rest of the world. Look at verse 2, we'll go through verse 7. He says, you don't have any need to worry about the times and seasons, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul Paul really, with that very opening verse of verse 1, he's really, again, just mimicking what Jesus has said in the Gospels. Because in a couple places in the Gospels, Jesus basically says to those who are hearing him, you don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody else knows when it's going to happen. Oh, by the way, I'm the one coming back, and I haven't even been told yet. He says, only the Father knows when my return is going to come. And so Paul is, is encouraging them here in that uncertainty. Well, when's this going to happen, Paul? When are we going to be freed from this? And so he's encouraging them. Now, part of the reason they probably had uncertainty is because they lived, if you read through the New Testament letters... And you read some of the writings that revolve around those first 130, 140 years or so of the church. They lived with an expectation that Jesus' return was imminent. Any day. I, I, I must confess to you, I don't think God's people live with that same expectation today. If we really believed that it could be today that it could be tomorrow, that it could be Friday. If we really believed that in our hearts, how different would our evangelism look? How different would our missions focus look? How different would we treat earthly possessions if we knew tomorrow or really believed tomorrow that he could come back? I, I don't know that we live with the same expectations that the early church did. And, and I get it. I understand, right? The human side of it. I, I'm not trying to lay any parent guilt on you here, okay? Because it's not the purpose of this illustration. But we understand that there's sometimes as parents, or in, in the past or present, or maybe even the future that's yet to come, we'll say things to our kids like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll go to King's Island. Oh yeah, 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 we'll we'll go fishing, we'll go camping. And then a month or so later they go, hey, are we going to go? Uh-huh. Yep, yeah, we'll we'll go. I promise you. We we just we gotta get a tent, we gotta get fishing poles, I gotta get a license, we gotta find a place to fish, we gotta save up some money for King's Island, right? Okay. A month or two passes. Are we going? Yeah, absolutely, right? And when that kind of dialogue takes place, what does the kid end up doing? We ain't going. Right? And so for 2,000 years now, the Word of God has been saying, Jesus is coming back. For 2,000 years now, preachers and, and scholars and, and historians of the Bible and teachers of the Bible have been saying to the world, Jesus is coming back. For 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has been impressing upon people's hearts. Jesus is coming back. And when we have that and we approach it strictly from a human perspective, we probably tend to go, eh, well, yeah, yeah. Probably not in my lifetime. I got time. My life expectancy, according to, you know, the whatever poll it is, is 73. I'll be 54 in October, so I'm good. It's probably not going to be during that segment. And again, I, I, I say I, I fear we have that because of the way we treat life. I, 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 don't, I know very few people that get up every morning and go, oh, this is the day. I know a lot of people that get up every morning and go, all right, I got this to do, and this to do, and this to do, and when am I going to find time to do that? And Paul wants to encourage the church in this, in this uncertainty that they have, and he gives them two really distinct sets of images, darkness and light, sober and drunk. When you walk in darkness, you fumble around, don't you? Hands out, searching, am I going to run into something? Is there something here that's going to trip me up? If you've ever seen a person in a drunken state, they tend to stagger, be very off balance. Uh, don't, they don't get from A to B very easily, right? Paul says, you're, you're not like that, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not stumbling around. You're not staggering around. You are children of light. When you have light, you see clearly, don't you? You are not like that. You live soberly. When you you live soberly, you walk swiftly. And so he he encourages them really by this reminder to say, this is who you are. And because this is who you are, you don't have to worry about when Christ is going to come. If it's tomorrow, if it's Friday, if it's five years from now. Because you as children of light and children of sober living are going to be ready. What he's really saying to the Christians in Thessalonica and to us is this today. That we all ought to be living in such a way where if it's today, we are not surprised. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days I'm thankful God didn't come back. I would have had some explaining to do. He says, if you walk as children of light, if you walk as children who are sober, then you will not worry about this. Their uncertainty at Thessalonica needed some encouraging truth. And so Paul continues here then in verses 8 through 11. Read along with me. After he gives them these two understandings, he says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's he's referring back to what he would write later. He's not really referring back. He's giving a, a foretaste of what he would write in Ephesians 6 later. And then he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with them. Again, he he gives them again a reminder of who they are. Your children of light, your children who are sober. And not only that, he gives them a reminder of God's faithfulness in verse 9. God has not destined us, appointed us, he does not appoint us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. What is Paul getting across here? He's getting across that in Christ, you and I don't have to worry about his return, that his return is going to come, the scriptures say, with a day of wrath. A day of God's outpouring of his anger on those who are still living in their sin. On those who are still re- rejecting and rebelling against God. But in Christ, God has not destined you or me for that. It's what he would write in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What he's essentially saying to them and to us, today, God's not in the bait and switch business. If you are fully in Christ, if you have fully been forgiven in Christ, you and I do not have to worry about that day. He will not appear on that day to to pull the rug out from underneath of us. And he gives them one final piece of encouragement there in verse 10, that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. He's, He's writing specifically to their concern. Well, what about those who've already died and Jesus has not come back yet? It's what he addressed in chapter 4. He says, I promise you, whether dead or alive, in Christ, you're not going to miss out on a forever life with Christ. In verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I'm going to flip over to Hebrews chapter 3 for just a moment. So in Thessalonians, he says, We encourage each other in our grief and we encourage each other in uncertainty. In Hebrews, In both chapter 3 and chapter 10, where we'll be in just a moment, it's the second point for today. We are to encourage one another in holy living. We are to encourage one another in holy living. Look at Hebrews 3, uh, beginning at verse 12, if you will, we'll go through verse 14. We we covered this. We we went through Hebrews for a little over a year, but uh, it'll be a nice refresher course for those that were involved in that. And if you weren't involved with it, then you'll get it for the first time today. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, encourage, one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for if we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end he says take care my brothers that is a phrase that really means this in the body of Christ there is responsibility for one another because he says take care my brothers so that none of you have this type of heart so he, he's, he's encouraging us to encourage one another in this type of living there's a responsibility that we have to one another and, and I'll remind you that when we see the word heart in the bible uh, we often you know sort of think of it purely in terms of emotions and really emotions of affection right but the word heart in that day meant this it had to do with intellect it had to do with emotion and it had to do with the will of man in, in Mark 7, Jesus is teaching, he says, Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, which is greed, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says there's a whole lot more to the heart than just this simple affection of love. And so out of the heart of the evil man comes all of this. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, take care church take care of one another lest there be in you this kind of heart an evil unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away and you do this how verse 13 by encouraging one another exhorting one another and to do it every single day we do it every day to prevent that hardening of that heart you know, medically, there's, there's that, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, but there's that condition right where our arteries harden, right? Plaque builds up, and it causes problems. And I, there, there are, I think, you know, some genetic cases where people just sort of have a natural uh, issue with that. But by and large, the greater percentage of people that that happens to, it happens to them over a long period of time. With every double cheeseburger that they don't then seek to walk off on the treadmill right, with every bag of chips, with every fatty food, right, that they, they don't seek to counter effect with, with, ed, with medicine or with, uh, with exercise or something. Like I, don't, I don't know that, that many people walk in at age 20 and the doctor goes, oh, you've got the hardening of the arteries, but a lot of people go in at 40, 50, 60, and what's the first question that doctor usually asks? Tell me about how you eat, Right? It builds up over time, over time, over time. And so this is really the same sort of thing in a spiritual sense of the hardening of the heart. Encourage each other every day so that the spiritual arteries of your heart don't harden. Now, why is the everyday necessary? Well, let's go back to the physical understanding, right? If every day I'm not taking care of what I eat or exercise, or the case may be, everyday missed is an opportunity for that to happen in my life, right? Physically. Spiritually, it's the same thing. And so we encourage one another. And look at how he says this. Exhort one another today, verse 13, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He speaks specifically here to this spiritual heart hardening due to sin due to our willingness to sin, due to our accepting of our sin, due to our not confessing our sin and repenting of our sin and receiving God's grace and forgiveness and power not to sin. This is going to require for us, if we're going to encourage one another, and particularly in areas of sin, you know what that requires? That requires us being open to one another about our sin. Now, I'm not suggesting that we take turns standing up here and confessing to the whole body. But you ought to have a few trusted brothers or sisters in Christ that really know the real you, the true you, the one that has struggles, the one that has faults, the one that has pitfalls, so that they can encourage you every day. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I got you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, the Lord's got you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, the spirit that lives within you has got you. And the, the one thing I love about this is he says to do this every day. Listen, with text messaging and social media and email and whatever other communication you think, we can do this every day with no problem. Then they had to go find people, right? Right? To encourage them every day. You, you got it at your fingertips. The, there's a thing in your phone where you can set reminders. And you can set a reminder hey, eight o'clock every day, encourage this person. Now, again, it, it requires us to know each other well, doesn't it? Right? that we can encourage each other. In a few weeks, we'll deal with one of the one another sayings in James 5.16 that says, confess your sins to one another. I suspect that may be a lightly attended service if I uh, say which one that is in advance, so I'm not going to. You and I can't encourage one another, exhort one another, to, to get one another to move past the deceitfulness of sin unless we really know one another. So when encourage one another in that area, in holy living, then flip on over to chapter 10, if you will. We also encourage one another in holy living, in love, good works, and community. Look at chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Now, stir up is not the same word as encouraging, but I think stirring up and encouraging go hand in hand, right? And what he says here is to stir up one another to love and the good works. The, the phrase stir up just means to, uh, it means to get their blood pumping. It means to get moving. It means to kind of shake people out of a stupor, Right? And so he's writing for us to stir up one another to the love and the good works, which is the demonstration of our faith. You're not saved by your good works, but good works demonstrate that you're saved. Now, can people do good works outside of the realm of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, they can. The issue is those who are in Christ should always be doing good works. We're called to do that. Again, referring to James' letter. He, he talks in chapter 2. He says, what good does it do if you see somebody who is hungry or poorly clothed, and you say to them, I'm praying for you. That's the essential translation of what James says. I'm praying for you. praying that you'll get some food and clothing. He says, you ought to be the one getting them food and clothing. Because if you're not, your faith is demonstrating that it's dead. And so this is important for us because I promise you, the world will notice our bad works much more than they notice our good ones. The world will notice our lack of work much more than they will notice our good ones. Now, there'll be some notice of our good ones. Peter gives us that encouragement that there'll be a day where they look back on what we do and they'll glorify God. But by and large, they will notice what we do wrong, or they will notice what we don't do at all, more so than our good ones. But we're still to do it. We're to stir one another up. We're to provoke one another. We're to encourage one another. And again, it's, it's this idea of kind of shaking each other out of this spiritual slumber. Like, like you, you get to a point in life, right, and you think, oh, well, I've done all I can do. <laughs> You know, maybe I've done all I can do physically. Maybe I've done all I can do emotionally. Maybe I've done all I can do financially. Maybe I've done all I can do with my time. And it's us looking at one another and going, no, 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 there's more for you to give. Let me encourage you. Let me stir you up that there's more for you to do for the kingdom of God. And he says we do that. That becomes a part of holy living. And then we encourage one another in being together in community. Look again at verse 25. We stir up one another, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day to come. We encourage one another to community. Now, when we went through Hebrews as a series, I took great caution here to say this, and I'll repeat it again. I'm not equating church attendance with salvation. Okay? Jesus saves a person. You can absolutely be saved and not be attending church but where it's possible where involvement and attendance and being a part of a body of Christ is something that can be achieved the Bible says we should be doing it it's not what saves you but again it's a demonstration that you've been saved it's a demonstration to say I want to be with brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing the same Jesus that I'm experiencing." And individually, you can pray, individually, you can worship, you can drive down Georgetown Road, K-Love on, and have your hands up, and like you can do all those kinds of things individually, you can serve individually, but we encourage one another to community, to not neglect it, but to be a part of it, because together, it takes on a different intensity. Intensity. Prayer takes on a different intensity when you come on Sunday nights and you join us in prayer and we pray together as a group. Worship and praise take on a different intensity when you come on Sunday mornings or some other designated time of worship and you gather together as a body and lift up your voices. Serving takes on a different intensity when you go out as a group and you go into your community and you do something together. Listen, I've I've had the great fortune to see some pretty remarkable events in my life. Um, some of you are golf fans, some of you are not. But if you're not, there's this tournament uh, called the Ryder Cup that pits U.S. players against international players. And it's this big, huge, worldwide tournament uh, every few years. And, and I watch it on TV, and I've loved watching it on TV, and I'm a golf nut. But I got to go to the Ryder Cup in 2008 when it was in Louisville. Being there doesn't even compare to watching it on TV in my living room. I was on the 17th green when Jim Furyk won that hole that clinched that Ryder Cup victory for the United States. And the cheers and the sounds and the the joy and the rejoicing that was going on, like if I had been watching that on my TV, yeah, I'd have been cheering and rejoicing. I'd have been giving him an attaboy, but nobody else would have heard it. Alyssa had probably been in the room, but she probably would have been doing Scrabble on her telephone or something, you know. There's a difference when you're there, right? I've watched the Kentucky Derby on TV like a lot of you all have. I've been at the Kentucky Derby three times, not on the infield. (laughs) Let me just just throw that out there. I was was in the stands and the boxes. I, I was pretty fortunate. There's nothing like it. And yes, you can individually pray and serve and worship and you can do all those things. And I, and I hope that you are. I hope that we're, we're making that a part of who we are. But there's nothing like coming together. There's nothing like joining together as the body of Christ and doing these things. And so when he's writing this here, he's saying encourage one another not to stay away, but to come. And I, I get it. There's, there's times that you just can't make it. I know that. There's times from, a, from an illness point of view or maybe something else that you just can't be here. And, and I know that and the Lord knows that and the Spirit of God knows that. And, and, and brothers and sisters in Christ love you, you know that. But when those times aren't in our lives, we ought to be encouraging one another. If, if you've been looking around you lately and, and, and you've been thinking, man, there's somebody that used to sit here or somebody that used to sit close and I just haven't seen them very much. Are you encouraging them? Now listen, again, don't be destructive in it. Y'all really ought to be church more. Right? I miss you when you're not at church, you say to them. I love seeing you in our services. I love seeing you in our fellowship. I love seeing you when we gather together to serve on a work day. I miss you. How can I encourage you today to be a part of what we're doing at Providence Baptist Church? And we could, I, 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 I fully understand it. Man, there's a hundred reasons not to be here this morning, right? There's one really important reason that overrides them all, and that's that God's word says we're to be here. We're to gather together. We're to pray together, worship together, serve together, learn together, fellowship together, and then that reason overcomes everything else. So as we close, back in John 15, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit to come. And he uses this word that sometimes is translated comforter or helper or advocate. It's a noun there in, when, John uses, or when Jesus uses it in John 15. But it's this Greek word that means helper, comforter, or advocate. And it really means to come alongside of, okay? It's, uh, the, the word encourage is the verb form of that noun. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus says, there's going to come a spiritual power and presence upon you. The helper, the comforter, the advocate. He's going to come alongside of you. And he's going to guide you into truth. He's going he's to reveal to you what you need to know. That's the discourse of John 15 and 16. Is that you're going to be able to rely as believers in Christ this understanding of what it means to have the Holy Spirit. But then all these New Testament authors come through and start talking about encouraging one another. And what they're really saying is you are going to do the work of the Spirit by the Spirit. You are going to come alongside one another. In grief, in uncertainty, in holy living as it it is affected by sin, and in holy living as it is affected our love and our good works and our fellowship. I want you to think about this one thing as we close. This is the only time in your eternity that you're going to have the opportunity to do this to this group of people. Just think about that for a moment. When you are a part of a body of Christ you are a part of a local church, this is the only time in all of your eternity, the time, and when I say the time, I mean the span of your life, this is the only time in all of eternity you're going to have this responsibility. You're not going to have this responsibility in heaven because we're not going to need to worry about encouraging one another from sin because we're not going to be sinning. You're not going to have this responsibility in heaven because there's not going to be any grief. There's not going to be any uncertainty. You didn't have this responsibility before you became a Christian. But now in Christ, you have a responsibility for this span of time in your life and my life to do this. Oh, whoa, won't we encourage one another to the glory of God. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankford at gmail.com.